Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special symposium episode of the show focused on financial and corporate regulation in the Biden administration. As part of this symposium, we'll hear from five panels of scholars and practitioners about what we might expect for financial and corporate regulation over the next four years of the Biden-Harris administration. We'll return with our regular episodes next week. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Welcome to the second episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. This panel on investor protection and corporate finance includes Laura Posner, Jennifer Schulp, and James Fallows Tierney. Laura, Jennifer, James, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great to be here. So I'm looking forward to hearing some of your insights about investor protection and corporate finance in just a few moments. But I wondered if before we begin, if you could introduce yourselves and maybe highlight any areas or issues that you're focused on as we look to the next four years. Laura? Sure. Thanks for having us, Andrew. I'm currently a partner at Cohen Milstein Sellers in Toll, which is a plaintiff side class action law firm. And I primarily focus my practice on securities and derivative litigation on behalf of public pension funds, unions, and other institutional investors. Prior to coming back to private practice, I was the securities regulator for the state of New Jersey and was also the head of enforcement for the North American Securities Administrators Association, which is the association of all state, provincial, and territorial securities regulators in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. With regard to the next four years, I think because I've worked both in private practice as a plaintiff-side securities litigator and also as a regulator, I often looked at investor protection and financial market regulation from two different perspectives. They're often very correlated, but have different areas of emphasis. In private litigation, my clients' primary priorities are on issues pertaining to forced arbitration, proxy access, and ESG disclosures. But as a former regulator, I'm also very interested and concerned about the overwhelming breadth of deregulation and privatization of the securities markets that began with the Jobs Act under the Obama administration and then continued really full throttle over the course of the Trump administration. So those are the kind of areas that I'm really going to be focused on over the next four years. Great. Thank you. It is great to have you on the show. Jennifer? Great. Thanks. And so glad to be here. My name is Jennifer Schulp. I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Although that's a pretty broad title, my focus is on securities and capital markets. I've been at Cato for a pretty short period of time. Joined Cato in April, coming off of many years at FINRA in FINRA's Enforcement Department. And prior to that, in a private practice capacity with Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, doing mostly defense side work as a general litigator and also as a securities litigator. Obviously, I'm interested in issues that affect free markets and liberty, coming from the Cato end of things. But there are a couple of particular things that I'm going to be interested in focusing on and looking at over the next four years as the Biden administration works through the SEC. One of those, I think, should be no surprise to anyone, is the large topic of ESG which is an incredibly broad topic and has implications for the very fundamentals of our system of public company disclosure in this country, touching on basically every corner of securities regulation and beyond. So I'm going to be very focused on 
the issues and hoping that we have a rational and nuanced discussion about the proper role that ESG disclosures, corporate purpose, materiality, risk disclosures, kind of the broad picture all play into our regulation of financial markets and securities. Another particular area of interest for me is retail investors and empowering retail investors to be able to make smart investment decisions. That is going to be an interesting question moving in through the Biden administration. I think both parties during the Trump years and the Clayton years of the SEC and the forthcoming Biden years are interested in protecting retail investors, but there tends to be a different way of going about that type of protection, but not always. So I think it will be interesting to see where some of that comes out. There's been a lot of talk about deregulation for retail investors, the minor expansion of the accredited investor definition under the Clayton SEC. But at the same time, some of the concerns about retail investor participation through trading apps and others may not have a as big of a difference between what a Clayton SEC and a to-be-named Biden SEC would have different ways of going about it. So I'm very interested in retail investors as well. But there's so much to be focused on, I think, as we move towards the next four years. And I'm, I'm very excited to talk about that today. Great. Well, it's great to have you on to talk about some of those things today. And James? Yeah, sure. I'm James Tierney. So until summer 2020, I was a senior counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission's Office of the General Counsel, where I mostly handled administrative adjudications and SRO review matters. I joined the University of Nebraska College of Law faculty this year, where I teach classes on securities regulation, business associations, and corporate finance. So my research and policy focus over the next four years touches on a couple of important areas. They tend to overlap with the ones that Jennifer was mentioning as well. So one of them is about kind of the role of institutional investors' portfolio-level view of risk and reward and what this means for things like ESG policy. How do you help capital markets allocate capital Toward sectors that you know are desirable from an ESG perspective and away from sectors that are going to need to be less powerful if we're going to make any kind of meaningful progress on big social problems like climate change. I'm also focused on a host of other issues related to um, retail investor protection. You know, these are issues of perennial importance to FINRA and SEC and the exchanges. And so I, I agree that I don't expect significant changes over the next several years there. But retail markets where people act more like consumers than sophisticated investors do require a different regulatory approach. So it will be interesting to see how both enforcement priorities change as they relate to capital markets intermediaries like funds, advisors, and brokers, as well as changes that we might see in the rulemaking space. This symposium is really looking forward to the next four years of investor protection and corporate finance. But before we get to that, I'd like to maybe look backward a little bit and maybe ask the panelists, are there areas of missed opportunities or mistakes that you have seen in this space by either the Trump administration or the Obama administration before it? And if so, are there any perhaps opportunities that you see for the future? Laura? Sure. Unfortunately, I think there have been quite a few mistakes or missed opportunities during the last administration. I'll start off with uh, regulation best interest. I really think this was an 
absolute mistake to not put in place the fiduciary duty rule for a number of reasons. First of which, obviously, protecting investors, particularly retail investors, is absolutely critical to a well-functioning market. And it's particularly of importance right now, given that we have greatly underfunded retirements in this economy. So from that perspective, I think that's the first thing I would say about why it was a mistake. But I think something that gets lost in this conversation is the fact that not having some form of a uniform fiduciary duty rule across brokers, investment advisors, folks dealing with retirement accounts, is that it gets very confusing both for the financial professional and for the investor. We regularly heard when I was a state regulator from retail investors that they had no idea even what position their financial professional had, whether they were a broker, whether they were an investment advisor, were they both? Um, And we have continually seen an increase in these what we call dual hat types of financial professionals. It becomes very complicated both for the individual seeking some form of advice or financial professional assistance and for the person providing that financial assistance to keep track what their various obligations are. It raises further issues of compliance oversight by the institutions that employ these folks as well. And so for a number of reasons, I I really think this was a missed opportunity and one that I hope will see some serious modification over the course of the Biden administration. And I think we'll probably get into that a little bit more later on today. After Reg BI, I think the fact that this administration favored private capital raising over public markets was a huge mistake. The deregulatory efforts were hugely problematic. Rather than help businesses raise money, they largely have incentivized companies to stay private for long periods of time. And then they've served to push more and more investors, and particularly retail investors, into opaque and far more risky private markets. I think just in 2008, the SEC estimated that approximately $2.9 trillion was raised through exempt offerings that far surpassed the amount raised in the public markets. And Jennifer raised the issue of the accredited investor definition. I think this was a huge missed opportunity as well. While they expanded the individuals who fall within the definition of an accredited investor to include those who have passed a number of financial professional exams, uh, they did not increase the income and net worth requirements that have now been unchanged since 1982. At that time, I think 1.6% were qualified as an accredited investor. Now it's well in excess of 13% or 16 million Americans, many of whom are elderly and don't have the opportunity or time to make up for money that might be lost in a much more opaque or risky investment. So I think expanding the definition to include financial professionals, but not expanding the definition to increase the income and net worth criteria was a real mess. Along similar lines, we have a bunch of other exemptions that have either been proposed uh, and are pending or have gone into effect that have had the same result, pushing more people into private markets and away from the public markets, all under the, I guess, guise of capital formation and, and supposedly increasing the opportunities for retail investors to 
take part in these types of companies without really any consideration, as far as I can tell, of the ramifications of what that means, the economics of it, whether it's necessary, if there isn't sufficient opportunity for retail investors in particular to invest in companies that are public and provide actual true disclosures. So as a general matter, this whole area of deregulation and pushing of private exempt offerings has really been, I think, a huge mistake by this administration. Similarly, I think the proxy rules changes were real mistakes. The SEC has made it significantly more difficult for investors and particularly retail investors to propose new rules or changes or to renew proposals over time. It impedes the voice of shareholders bringing to the attention of companies things that they need to pay attention to. And research has time and time again shown that shareholder proposals can generate positive long-term returns for companies. And that limiting the ability of shareholders to submit proposals is quite harmful to companies. And we're seeing over time that shareholder proposals are gaining significant more support. The percentage of shareholders voting in support of proxy proposals has increased dramatically. um, And putting in place these types of rule changes will likely serve to stifle campaigns that have been building momentum over a number of years. I think this rule proposal was a solution looking for a problem. The number of shareholder proposals is very modest. It accounts for less than 2% of voting items at U.S. shareholder meetings. And on average, only 13% of Russell 3000 companies even receive a shareholder proposal in a given year. And these proposals have played a major role in making valuable changes in corporate governance policies, in corporate reporting and practices on environmental and social matters. They include board and committee independence rules, independent board leadership, uh, shareholder rights, including majority vote standard in elections of directors, board diversity, accounting for stock options, a whole host of, of things that have not only been good for shareholder value, but but good for corporate governance and good corporate citizenship. So those are the areas where I think there's been real mistakes by this administration. In terms of opportunities, a lot of what I think are opportunities are things to fix what I thought were mistakes in the Trump administration. So with regard to Reg BI, while it may not be feasible to entirely change Reg BI and, and transform it into a fiduciary duty role, although I do hope that that is something that is considered. There are changes that can be made to give Reg BI some more teeth. First, from an enforcement perspective, actually bringing cases to enforce the law. From an examination perspective, ensuring that these regs are being followed. And then from a regulatory guidance perspective, someone could actually define what best interest means, because the rule certainly doesn't do that now. And it could be defined in a way that makes it much more in accordance with a fiduciary duty obligation. I think that's something that this administration will be focused on. It's something that was part of the Democratic platform this year, and I would expect to see something along those lines. With regard to ESG and climate risk factors, 
I think there is uniform desire by the institutional investor community for these types of factors to be set forth in public disclosures. You saw the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee recommending that public companies issue more thorough disclosures explaining their ESG commitments and citing that asset managers consider ESG policies important to their investment strategy. And certainly the Biden administration has put climate and racial justice, two of its top four priorities. And this seems like a very opportune place for them to put forth some sort of new disclosure requirements, hopefully uniform ones that will make some real difference in the governance of companies and the ability of companies to withstand these really systemic market changing issues. I'd like to see the SEC actually go back and increase the net worth and income levels in the accredited investor definition. Something we haven't talked about, but I think I'd like to see the SEC work on and I think might be on the table is the issue of dual class shares. We are seeing more and more companies when they go public giving their founders 10 to 1, 20 to 1 voting rights that do not ever sunset often go on in perpetuity for kids and grandkids. And this issue has been raised by a number of folks associated with the SEC. Former Commissioner Jackson did a lot of work on dual class shares, calling it a form of corporate royalty um, and calling for some form of sunset clause after a certain number of years on these dual class shares. We saw SEC investor advocate Rick Fleming urging the agency to rein in dual class shares, calling it a festering wound on public markets. So I'd like to see and hope that we will see some changes in this area, likely some sort of compromise where it's a sunset provision at some point in time. Something that has been out there both at the congressional level and at the SEC and actually made the rounds today in a number of news articles based on recent study by Professor Mitz from Columbia is the use of 10B51 plans, which were supposed to be put in place to prevent insiders from selling on inside information. There's a lot of evidence out there now that they are being used to insider sell on private information, whether that's in the case of the scholarship that came out today, where these plans are being put in place with trigger amounts so that when new information, positive information comes out that causes the stock price to jump, that these officers are able to take advantage of that. So I'd like to to see some more work done in that area and potentially some modifications to the rules. And then finally, there's currently a pending yet another exemption for private placement finders. To the extent that that does not go into effect prior to this administration ending, that's certainly something that I think should not go into effect. Finders in general are known to be prone to abuse. It's a major issue that uh, state securities regulators see day in and day out. The controls in the current proposed rule do not in any way ensure that finders only solicit sophisticated investors. I think they're far too vague to enforce and that they cannot be monitored for compliance. Uh, So those are the areas that I'd like to see the SEC take some steps to rectify the uh, missed opportunities or the mistakes of the Trump administration. Okay, thank you. Jennifer? 
Okay, thanks. Laura had a lot to say there, and I think it shouldn't come as much surprise that I'm going to come at it from a slightly different direction, because I think some of the mistakes that she points out are things that I thought were missed opportunities to go bigger by the Trump administration. But before I get to that, I kind of wanted to talk about a few what seem to be lower stakes issues but that I think have been missed opportunities, kind of administration in and administration out for years. And one of those is the the fact that the SEC seems to take forever to make easy and needed changes, particularly in the face of technological change and the way business is done. The recent Reg ST e-filing updates or e-signature updates were probably a decade plus overdue. And e-delivery is something that is still not a default in many instances. And in fact, with Reg BI, was initially prohibited for those forms that were sent out in June. These types of steps are things that make lives for companies and investors easier, and they make the SEC's rules easier to comply with. And they're not the type of moves that we should be needing to wait for some sort of massive external shock like a pandemic to be put into place. The SEC needs to really be able to focus on continuing to modernize and update its rules in these areas when the need arises and not being 10, 15 years plus behind the times. And I'll say that as well, a missed opportunity and one that I hope that will become an opportunity for the future is particularly seeing as how the SEC has now elevated its Office of Innovation. The hesitancy to speak in the crypto space and to provide guidance on that innovative front is just another place where the SEC has been slow to make changes that support innovation and can have the tendency to make our markets lag behind other places that are willing to support innovation. Crypto is a big space there, but even looking forward, the SEC has been slow on the regulatory front to make changes that help financial services institutions take advantage of blockchain or cloud storage, or even the simple question of how to regulate texting with customers. Some of that falls on FINRA's lap as well. But I think there's been kind of a continual history of missed opportunities. And I hope that an SEC um, over the next four years is willing to act a little bit more quickly in these spaces. Turning, I think, a little bit to some of the higher stakes issues that Laura was talking about, private markets, accredited investors. There, I think, rather than mistakes, I think that those were missed opportunities by the Trump administration to think bigger. On the accredited investor definition, I think even those that do not support expanding the definition or doing away with it entirely view wealth as a poor proxy for sophistication of investors to determine whether or not those investors should be investing in more difficult to understand investments. And raising the wealth threshold there simply potentially decreases the number of people that are able to make those investments. But again, without really answering the question of whether or not they're sophisticated enough to understand the investment that they are investing in. So for me, that was a missed opportunity rather than a a risk or a mistake. I don't think that we will see any changes in that front going forward. I don't know that there's going to be a, a real interest in revisiting the accredited investor definition, even to re-index 
towards inflation, given the number of years that even the minor change that was just put into place took to happen. On the private market reform and the exemption question, I think for me, again, a missed opportunity. I'm obviously coming at this from a deregulatory perspective. But even if you have a different view as to what the proper balance between public and private markets should be, the patchwork of exemptions that we have in place are next to impossible to understand, even for those with securities law backgrounds. And that doesn't even answer the question of what does a a founder or an entrepreneur do when they're trying to navigate this early on for the first time. But they cause real frictions in the process that are externalities not related to the importance of whether or not a company should be public or private. I would have hoped to have a bigger rethinking than just some tinkering around the edges as to try to get the patchwork to to seal a little bit tighter, to kind of tighten up the stitching, so to speak. I would have liked to have seen a broader rethink of the exemptions and the entire front on that. Reg BI is an interesting question for me because I think one of the worst things about Reg BI is its name because I think, as Laura pointed out, that it doesn't really have a clear definition as to what best interest means. And it can tend to lull an investor who doesn't know better into thinking that best interest is a fiduciary standard. And I think that's a problem. I think that, again, Laura points out a very valid concern and one that I saw often as an FINRA enforcement attorney that the lack of a uniform standard really does confuse investors and they don't understand what hat their financial service professional is wearing when they're giving advice to them. I'm a little bit more agnostic as to what that standard should be. Um, My biggest concern there is with maintaining investor options for being able to purchase securities. I think it's very difficult to have a uniform fiduciary standard and maintain a commission business. And the commission business can keep costs down for investors who have certain types of needs. I don't know if that means that I'm saying that Reg BI was a missed opportunity or a mistake, but I do think that we're likely to hear a lot more about it. And I think it is something that the Biden administration is going to take up. And I think it is something that whether the Biden administration makes changes or has um, guidance that I agree with or disagree with, some actual firm guidance in the Reg BI space as firms and investors try to figure it out is probably going to be useful. There's a lot to say about what can be happening in the future, and I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later, too. So I'll I'll leave it at that. James? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I agree with Jennifer that there are some low hanging fruit that the SEC has historically missed opportunities in trying to make things easier. You know, things like e-filing are a real problem, not only on the issuer regulated entity side, but they also hamper the agency and its staff from getting their jobs done as easily. Um, So, you know, for me, a missed opportunity has been to modernize the administrative enforcement proceedings filing system, which has been, you know, a decade in the making and still no progress on it um, in order to make things easier and open up some transparency on what's going on within the agency, you know, adjudication docket. I also think that some 
some of the Trump administration's more overlooked efforts in the area of investor protection and corporate finance have been some of the most odious. You know, one of the biggest shifts in the last couple decades has been the rise of big institutional investors that hold diversified market portfolios. And these funds and their beneficial owners look at risk and reward at the portfolio level rather than the company level. I think Bloomberg columnist Matt Levine gave the best illustration when he said that investors could reasonably demand that the drug company Pfizer distribute free COVID-19 vaccines if their portfolio level gains would, quote, more than make up for bankrupting Pfizer. So that creates conflicts of interest between investors based on whether or not they're diversified. The securities laws haven't really kept up with those changes. And in many ways, what we saw with the Trump administration is trying to impede them. So, you know, this administration has impeded giving institutional investors tools to allocate capital or vote proxies in ways that serve, you know, their kind of portfolio level interests, but might harm the interests of concentrated shareholders like CEOs who are compensated with different kinds of equity exposure. You know, the biggest area in which that has implications for us is ESG investing, which is popular with investors who find it profitable or who might be willing to forego or accept lower profits to pursue secondary goals. You know, while investors are clamoring for greater disclosure of ESG information, You'll note that it was conspicuously missing from the SEC's efforts to modernize Regulation SK earlier this year. The Department of Labor has proposed some other rules in this space that seem to be designed to prevent institutional investors from allocating capital away from ESG-disfavored industries. So that includes a proposal to limit 401k plan sponsors from considering ESG in selecting investment options and uh, limiting pension funds in voting ESG-related proxies against uh, managers' recommendations. There are other kinds of regulatory efforts like rulemaking about shareholder proposals and proxy advice that Laura was talking about that I think are also meant to keep power out of the hands of the big diversified institutional investors. That's an important opportunity moving forward because institutional investors' portfolio level view of risk on things like climate change and COVID is kind of like the rest of societies, much more so than you know the CEO of a, of a fossil fuel company. So if as a society, we're going to make any headway on things like climate policy, I think a necessary opening will be to let capital markets allocate away from some of those ESG disfavored sectors. Really briefly the and completely separately, this is a pet issue of mine, but I, th- I think another missed opportunity is that the S- or maybe a mistake, is that the SEC has lost its religion on one of the major elements of the securities self-regulation concept. And this is the idea that that SEC has a role in carefully scrutinizing the SRO's exercise of power to set competition policy within the capital markets. You know, FINRA and the exchanges get special dispensation under the Exchange Act, as well as antitrust immunity to do things that are very anti-competitive in their own industries. That antitrust immunity is based on the notion that they're overseen by the SEC, which in looking at SRO rules beforehand at 
as well as at their actions afterward, is supposed to consider the effect of SRO action on competition. But the SEC rarely does so in any meaningful way. And just as we saw meaningful changes during the Trump administration toward a more principles-based corporate disclosure paradigm, I think there's an opportunity uh, for the future in approaching securities regulation through a more robust competition policy angle, which might also improve some of the perennial complaints and concerns about the role that the self-regulators play in securities markets. So thank you. And thank you all for that. We are recording this panel discussion on December 7th, 2020. So at this point, we don't know who the next chair of the SEC will be. We don't know quite exactly what the composition of Congress is going to look like. But I wondered if with those limitations in mind, if you might be able to offer a little bit of a prediction on where you see investor protection, corporate finance regulation heading in the next four years. And if you were advising the next SEC chair or the next Congress, what might you suggest that they do in this space? Or where should they be putting their focus? Laura? So I think for the next administration and for Congress and whomever becomes the chair of the SEC, there's going to be a real focus on recovering the economy after the pandemic. And I think part of what is necessary to do that is to renew confidence in the markets and renew confidence in the ability of investors and particularly retail investors to grow their retirement assets. And to do that, they're going to have to deal with the deregulation and focus on capital formation that has been really what this SEC under the Trump administration has been focused on, and instead turning to investor protection and putting back up a number of those guardrails and protections that are necessary to give investors confidence in the markets. So I think that'll be a real focus. And how they do that, I think, is going to be in a number of different ways. First, you're going to see that in terms of the regulatory priorities of the agency, um, the types of rules that they propose and what they're focused on, but will also impact, I think, how they handle enforcement. So we'll see, I think, more focus on public companies rather than the smaller private exemption type of fraud or Ponzi schemes or things of that nature. We'll hopefully see a renewed focus again on accounting fraud This has been, I guess, a real pet peeve of mine, and this is not unique to this administration, but we have seen very little oversight of the accounting industry post-Sarbanes-Oxley. While certainly the number of restatements has come down, amount of accounting fraud has not. And you're seeing a real lack of interest or wherewithal to bring claims against accounting firms although certainly not uniform. I I have a case right now against KPMG uh, rising out of a a large fraud against Miller Energy. And there the SEC took probably the most significant action I've ever seen an SEC take against an accounting firm, but that was largely a holdover from the Obama administration. And conversely, I have another case pending against Deloitte Touche rising out of a fraud, the power company in South Carolina called Scana, where at least publicly, there's been no known information about whether the SEC is even investigating Deloitte Touche. And that's after a situation in which two of the senior officers of SCANA have now pled guilty and will be going to jail. 
So I, I really anticipate that we'll see a focus on enforcement. And I think that focus of enforcement on public companies and accounting fraud gives real confidence to folks investing in the market that there is a regulator out on the beat, that someone is overseeing these companies and ensuring that they act appropriately. Another area we haven't talked much about, but I really would encourage the next administration to focus on is the issue of forced arbitration. We've seen the proliferation of forced arbitration in basically every aspect of our lives, from our cell phone contracts to the TVs we buy to our employment agreements. And there has been a renewed effort largely driven by former professor, I think he's now Professor Emeritus, Hal Scott at Harvard, to put in place these forced arbitration agreements and the bylaws or certificates of incorporation of public companies. I think that is a huge mistake for many, many reasons, not the least of which I think you largely lose the deterrent effect of private litigation when you do something like that and take everything out of public sight, have no more development of the law or best practices for companies to follow when there is no law that is made public. And perhaps most importantly, from an investor perspective, is that you lose the ability to provide real and meaningful recovery to investors in many, many circumstances. The private securities bar is infinitely more effective at returning money to investors than the SEC is. And the SEC has regularly said that private litigation is a necessary component to oversight of the financial markets. It just does not have the resources, people to actually do all of these cases and to recover the kinds of money that private litigation does for investors. So I, I hope that's an area that we see some changes from the SEC in a way uh, contrary to what the Republican commissioners have been talking about in various speeches or on the Hill when asked to testify. All right. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer? So I think the next four years are going to be the four years of ESG. And I think that there's no question that the SEC is going to be focused on this. I think Congress is going to be focused on this in, in large part because it's not just a question of the SEC or of the financial markets themselves. Part of the broader agenda of the Biden administration, the broader agenda of the Democratic Party, because it touches a lot of other policy issues. And I think the SEC, which has been very reluctant thus far to really wade into this space, will undoubtedly take it up with vigor in the, in the coming four years, no matter who is the new SEC chair. I think on that front, I would offer some advice that it's kind of consistent with what I said at the beginning, which is ESG is a very broad topic and is one that I, I think needs careful consideration and careful consideration of the nuances at issue here. In fact, one of my peeves is that we continue to talk about ESG as ES and G together. That's not to parrot Jay Clayton on that topic, but to note that environmental, social, and governance all are talking about different parts of the company, present potentially different risk factors, and depending on which one you're talking about, present very different issues within its own letter. S covers a wide variety of issues that we often talk about in connection with this broader ESG concept, but I'm not positive that there's a lot of agreement on what S covers across the board. So I would counsel you know, taking the time to 
get this stuff right. I mean, what we're talking about here are potential changes in how we view our disclosure regime, whether we should be looking towards principles-based risk disclosure versus a more rules-based risk disclosure. These are fundamental questions as to how the securities laws are going to operate going forward, not simply a question of should a company be disclosing material environmental risks. There's also questions here as to systemic risk versus company-specific risks, whether or not the SEC is the right place to be talking about some of those systemic risks at all. So my advice there is just make sure that what we are doing is focused on the individual issues at hand and that we're being precise when we're thinking through them going forward. As a corollary to that, I think that the SEC needs to keep its mission in mind and staying out of environmental or social policymaking. Disclosures that are pure factual disclosures or pure risk disclosures are very different from disclosures that are seeking to move environmental or social policy through the SEC. Its mission is investor protection, capital formation, and market integrity. That is not a mission that is well served by trying to decrease carbon emissions. There are other agencies that handle that, and Congress has its hand there as well. I think we will have the four years of ESG, which perhaps might lead to four years after that of ESG, because it's such a large topic. But I know that's, there, there's going to be a large focus there. I think Laura is absolutely right that there's going to be much more of a focus on what the Democrats are going to refer to as investor protection and the types of moves that a Democratic Congress or a Democratic SEC would take as investor protection. I think she's absolutely right there. Again, I would caution the next SEC to not rush to undo a lot of what has already been done immediately. I think Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee and Commissioner Crenshaw, but specifically Commissioner Lee, have been very vocal throughout the new changes to the private market exemptions that, that we simply don't have data to understand what those changes were going to mean. And I think that concern should continue to be a concern and counsel against just automatically undoing what was done as well. I think that this is a good time for the SEC to learn more about how the private markets operate and to use that data to formulate regulations looking forward as to how to move more of that money to the public markets. But it's just as hard to make that move to the public markets without the data on the private markets as they were contending that it was going to be to understand the private markets when you're changing the private markets. I think that's a longer term project and they should focus some time now on understanding and gathering data about the operation of the private markets. I think Reg BI falls a little bit into the same category. Um, I said before that additional guidance is probably useful. I don't think that given how long it took us to get to Reg BI, there's going to be a lot of stomach for scrapping it and starting over again, um, especially as it would kind of leave a hole in its place. But I think it's useful to understand how Reg BI is operating, how investors are understanding it, how representatives are putting it into place. As part of that, giving out further guidance on the Reg BI front. 
think it makes sense to see how it's operating and whether there are any tweaks that want that we can make to the framework to make it operate better before consideration of just scrapping the whole thing and starting over again. A minor point, eh, not so minor, but I think the Trump administration was a little bit better about this, but I think it's something that should remain on both Congress and the SEC's mind going forward is kind of avoiding a regulatory duplication and trying to keep the SEC focused in the SEC's space. So we haven't talked at all about this today, but an area where it's come up quite a bit in the past is in the area of anti-money laundering enforcement, where there are an awful lot of agencies tasked with enforcing the Bank Secrecy Act and rules and regulations that go along with that. And it's not unusual for the SEC to be taking actions at the same time as other agencies. Um, and the coordination can be better on that front. Any other places where that happens, it, we're just not serving multiple regulatory aims by having multiple agencies taking multiple actions on the same facts. One last thing, just to, to echo, I think Laura is right about where we will likely see an enforcement focus going forward. I think it's the case that you know, 80, 90% of SEC actions that we see, we would see every year, regardless of which party is in the White House or which party is the SEC chair. But I do think that Laura's right about some of those actions that would be on the tails. We will be seeing more, I think more of a focus of enforcement against large public companies, some more focus on enforcement, certain investor protection issues than we've, we've had over the last four years. Thank you. And James? Yeah, so I think Jennifer and Laura have done a, a good rundown of some of the regulatory changes and new directions that we should expect to see um, over the next four years. I agree with uh, Jennifer's last comment that you know many issues about Mr. and Mrs. 401k and retail investor protection are likely to be a significant concern um, for any kind of administration. Certainly, you could see much more ambitious changes and shifts both in policymaking and in enforcement priorities if the Democrats were to take the Senate. you know, In that case, I would expect to see some bills providing for mandatory disclosure of information that investors are clamoring for on ESG metrics, and as well as information about corporate political spending. Right now, the SEC has been hobbled in doing anything about the political spending issue with appropriations riders. I also agree with Jennifer that the SEC's natural mission isn't you know, the substantive regulation of ESG-type issues. The problem is that in a world where you know the things that companies do, the externalities that they impose on society, the legislative and regulatory risks they face, uh, litigation risks, these are all important to the valuation decisions that investors make. And the SEC's job is to assess the amount and granularity of information that investors have in making those decisions. You know, our corporate laws empower shareholders to influence corporations and questions about how we're implementing ESG disclosure policy are really a way of asking, you know, are we are we giving shareholders the information they need to make these decisions? And it's hard for me to say that the SEC shouldn't be giving shareholders the tools they need, concerns about costs to companies of complying with disclosure obligations and things like that, ignore that ultimately it's the shareholders who are the ones who are paying for it as the owners of residual claims on the company's assets and cash flow. 
moving on to a couple of other areas, I mentioned problems with enforcement and examination of what the self-regulatory organizations are doing. Much of the fight in the Trump administration between the SEC and the stock exchanges has been about how much market power the exchanges get to exercise in the area of price discovery and market depth of book data. The DC Circuit had a big case earlier this year that held that certain kinds of market data fees aren't reviewable as denials of access to exchange services under the 34 Act. So that's certainly a setback for the SEC's program of competition policy in the SRO space. But I think the SEC would be taking a small potatoes view of competition policy if it leaves the issue there. Looking toward the end of the next four years, I would expect to see some regulatory and legislative changes related to the market for securities of cannabis companies. The House in early December 2020 voted to decriminalize cannabis. And while we're unlikely to see movement on that issue anytime soon, you are starting to see more red states like Oklahoma and this year in a ballot initiative, South Dakota, opening up their state's cannabis markets. So while that's likely to be low priority for the Biden administration, if you read the tea leaves based on uh, uh, Biden himself has said on this issue, I would expect to see some kind of legislative package, whether or not Democrats were to retake control of the Senate. Senate that tries to change how cannabis companies raise money from investors financing their operations and uh, accessing the capital markets. So just to illustrate on this, you know, think about cannabis companies that want to get listed on stock exchanges. Investor demand is high, valuations are frothy. And I think moving forward, especially if we see further liberalization at the federal level in this market, companies are going to look for the bonding and signaling benefits that come from meeting exchange listing criteria. And the exchanges are going to be competing for their business rather than resisting it as they currently are. So I think the effect of cannabis reform efforts on corporate finance is going to be another area to watch. I'd offer one final piece of advice to the Biden administration about an elephant in the room that we really haven't talked about today, which is anti-administrativism, you know, the attack on the credibility and legitimacy of federal administrative decision-making, both in the political sphere as well as in the courts. And, you know, that's compounded by the replacement of Justice Ginsburg with Justice Barrett on the Supreme Court, as well as the increasing number of federal judges appointed by President Trump. That is certain to be a headwind against whatever efforts the Biden administration pursues in the areas of investor protection and corporate finance. On that issue, the advice I'd offer regulators is not to be cowed by this particular kind of litigation risk. The financial sector regulation is popular and it's necessary to promote investors' confidence that they're going to get a fair shake in the market. I think Democrats sometimes get a reputation for coming to the negotiating table waving the white flag already. In my view, it's a virtue to be bold and aggressive in pursuing policy and have your agency action get overturned than to start out having compromised already and still have it get overturned. That's all the more important if you're going to set the stage for further financial sector reform in the future. One upshot of that approach that I'm recommending is that it connects the outcomes of particular policy debates on which the Biden administration's activity is likely to be politically popular with broader concerns about whether the current size and composition of the judiciary is consistent with the country's best interests. That's an issue that's not going to be addressed anytime soon. All right. So thank you all for 
those retrospective and prospective thoughts about this area of regulation over the next four years. I wondered if maybe we could, in the few minutes that we have left, maybe do some brief closing thoughts on this topic and things that listeners to this symposium panel should be thinking about. And I might reverse the order this time. Start with you, James. Sure. So uh, here's my closing thought. You know, at, at the time we're recording this conversation about the future for capital markets, you know, the, certainly the stock markets have, have never looked stronger in American history. But we also face massive unemployment and disruption from COVID-19 with ever-increasing numbers of folks lining up at food pantries and widespread economic precarity as something like half of Americans don't have any exposure to the stock market at all. So I think a challenge for quote-unquote financial regulation in general is to promote an economy that works for everyone. And while capital formation and investor protection are a critically important part of that, and for all of the reasons that um, all of the panelists today have discussed, you know, we can't lose sight of that broader picture of why we worry about the strength of the economy in the first place. All right. Thank you. Jennifer? Say so my closing thought is somewhat along the same lines. I mean, as we we move into the next administration, we are going to be continuing to work on this economic recovery. And uh, there are a lot of open questions about how the financial markets should operate. There's a lot of questions that have been raised for the past four years that are now going to be tackled by a new administration, including on, on ESG issues. I think it's important that we focus on ensuring that changes that are made or changes that are chosen not to be made um, don't hinder um, businesses, be that a large business or be that an individual who is working on their startup and trying to build a business from the ground up, that these changes don't hinder their ability to participate in the economy and to build jobs for themselves and their communities. Simultaneous with making sure that investors are getting the information that they need to be able to make wise investment decisions for themselves and help those entrepreneurs grow their businesses that way, kind of the the hand in hand here, that we're looking forward to more economic growth without without a drag from overregulation. Thank you. And Laura, last word. Yeah, so I want to reiterate a little bit of what James said. I think it's a really important part of the conversation that often gets lost. You know, part of what the SEC should be doing is not only protecting investors who are currently in the market or considering investing in the market, but making sure that there is a mechanism for those individuals who are not in the market to feel confident in getting involved and investing money when they can. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have sufficient guardrails up in place to protect them. And we're not throwing them into a situation in which they can invest in risky and opaque markets without sufficient information. Um, so I, I think that's a really important point. I also want to address what Jennifer just said. It sounded to me a lot like the conversations that led up to the JOBS Act during the financial crisis. And I think that's a real mistake. I think it's a misnomer to think that putting in place proper and appropriate investor protection somehow hinders the ability of businesses to raise jobs or rebuild the economy. I think they go hand in hand. And when we don't put in place the appropriate safeguards, you have a situation where in very short cycles, economic collapses can occur again. 
And obviously, the pandemic that we're living through now is not an economic collapse caused by the industry itself. It's obviously dealing with a virus that we have very little control over. But it is, I think, laying bare a number of the areas in which we have taken off protections that could potentially have better ensured that we have a strong economy coming out of the pandemic and helping us to rebuild the economy as we move forward. So I I think it's very concerning to me when I hear things like we need to be careful about the investor protection types of steps we take, or we should wait and to make changes until we have data when Largely, this administration has acted, as far as I can tell, at least in the private exemption space, without any data. That's been one of the biggest criticisms by all of the Democratic commissioners during this administration, is that you're acting without any evidence of problems. But we're now hearing kind of echoes of that, that we shouldn't make changes until we have data to support it. I don't think that's how the market should work. I think until there's evidence of a problem, There shouldn't be solutions made to fix a problem that doesn't exist. And I would encourage this administration to think more holistically about how best to recover from the pandemic in a way that ensures the long-term stability and safety of our markets and builds confidence in the U.S. markets moving forward. This has been the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration's Panel on Investor Protection and Corporate Finance. Our panelists have included Laura Posner, Jennifer Schulp, and James Fallis-Tierney. Laura, Jennifer, James, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast and the Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. Thanks for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.